some of you may remember, but at the first part of the year, uh, we talked about the call of Matthew, and we talked about new wineskins, and then we had Vision Sunday last week, and now I want to pick back up with the, the call of Matthew, and uh, who was one of the original disciples of Jesus. In my mind, one of the more unique disciples of Jesus because no one could have anticipated that he would be part of the core discipleship team. It was the most, it, I want to make the case that Matthew was actually the most unlikely candidate to be a follower, uh, a, a disciple, like that part of that planting team of disciples. So I want to revisit. Now, it's interesting because the, the call of Matthew is discussed in two of the Gospels. It's discussed in Matthew's own Gospel, and it's discussed in Luke. What's interesting is that Luke's Gospel gives us an additional detail that Matthew's own Gospel doesn't include. And we're going to look at that. So the goal here is to start with the passage itself, to unpack it, to watch how Jesus talks, what he says is important. Watch what happens as his disciples are confronted in Matthew's house. Matthew's throwing a party. His party has to do with a change in his occupation. He wants his friends to be there. In the course of that, what happens is there's a lot of exchanges that occur. And it's out of that that Jesus utters the words that we're going to look at. But again, it's so helpful to see it in its context. So this really happened, and we're going to talk about it and really dig into it. So let's look at, if you've got it in your hand out there, you can see it, verse 27. We'll pick right up. It says, after this, he went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi, who was sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. This was the call of Matthew, right? Sometimes, uh, it, it, and it refers to his other name, um, the name he uses sometimes, Sometimes he's known by it, Levi. So I'm just going to call him Matthew Levi. They were both interchangeable names. It was his moment, though, where he was to fully break with his past and follow Jesus. And in his case, it was Matthew was making a complete occupational shift. So he was literally transitioning out of what we might call a marketplace and into a full-time occupation of ministry. He was going to join Jesus' uh, kind of core team, as I mentioned, and, it, you know, again, it says, verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And then we're told, Levi made, a great, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others that were reclining at the table with him. That would be the way that they ate off the table in, in, in a reclining fashion, typical of the Middle Eastern culture. And I remember uh, the evidence, and the evidence suggests this pretty strongly, that Matthew Levi was not just a, a rank-and-file tax collector, that uh, he, was, he was someone who would have been considered an overseer. The, the word that is used there implies someone who was a chief tax collector. That would have been an overseer of tax collectors. We would say today he was in upper management and that he had a team that he oversaw. Now, the group tax collectors, sometimes called publicans in Jesus' day, were probably some of the most hated people in, in the culture. They, they were very despised. They were, they were viewed in many ways as traitors to their people. We've talked about this in depth, talked about it before. Part of the reason was they would often um, you know, get a cut that was on top of the legitimate tax that they collected for Rome, which was already an issue for a lot of people that they were, they were in a sense, taxing as representatives of Rome, their own people, and then on top of that, to add a tax for their own, Rome winks, and they get a little more wealthy. The idea being, if they're going to be despised, they might as well be wealthy and despised, right? And so remember, they were, they were, not consi they were considered, in some, in some circles, no better than the worst of sinners. 
right, in, in that regard. And so it must have come as a scandal or a surprise that when, when the news spread that one of their own, right, one of their own, no, no less than Matthew Levi, was, le was leaving to join the band of this unconventional rabbi who everybody was talking about named Jesus of Nazareth. And no doubt it had been a culmination of a process. But many, I guarantee you this, when word started to spread that Matthew, the chief task collector, was leaving everything behind to attach himself to Jesus, this rabbi who some were calling Messiah, that people, a lot of eyebrows were raised. Wow! As the word spread amongst Matthew's friends and associates. Are you serious? Wow! As the word spread with Jesus' disciples, no way. He's joining us? Whoa! As the word spread from John's disciples, how could he do that? Whoa! The Pharisees and scribes said, and he calls himself a holy man. No one expected it. It was, how can we put it, an extraordinary break with social convention and the mores of the time. I think we really underestimate, we underestimate what it was, what a significant development it was for someone of Matthew's past to become a disciple of Jesus. It, it, it really caused a stir. And, oh, and we were told, we're told one more piece of information that here that only Luke's gospel includes while Matthew's own gospel leaves it out. And one of the things we're told here is that it was at his house that Matthew decides to throw this party. And he's throwing this party evidently because he wants to intentionally introduce, listen, his friends, we would say his coworkers and his associates. He wants them to meet Jesus and he wants Jesus to be honored among them. He's very proud of what's happening, but he realizes these two worlds have not intersected that much. And so one of the things that's helpful to get our eyes around is that, you know, he had, he had become a true believer in Jesus. Like his life had been altered. From a spiritual standpoint, his eyes had been opened and he had truly come to believe that Jesus was everything he said he was. And so he had agreed to leave everything behind in his case and go on, we would say, an extended tour of duty. And he was going for it. And so this was his going away party the career transition party, in a way, it was his opportunity to have his friends meet Jesus. The mix of the feast, when we look at it more closely, was actually quite astounding. I want us in our mind's eye to try to imagine what we're being told happens here. I mean, it was the most, it was an unlikely gathering of disparate groups of people because Matthew was well-connected. I mean, he had a lot of connections. So you had, imagine in this group of people meeting this large gathering that he is throwing this, this because he's, he no doubt has some wealth. And in this gathering, he's created this feast. And in this feast, he's celebrating. And, he, and in this group, in this mass of, of people mixing together in ways that they normally did not do, you have Matthew's friends, his associates. Uh, again, they, they were tax collectors. And they shared a unique bond. Like they, they understood each other. Um, they were fellow publicans, as they were called. They had their own way of dressing. They had their own way of talking. They had their own 
jokes, tax collector jokes, right? Just like some of us, you have fields that you're in. Some of us have specific areas where we intersect with our associates at work. And we have had training and perhaps we have experience now in a particular field, the vernacular, the way we talk in that environment is unique, it's distinct. It's, it's, a lot of times there are phrases that are being used. This can happen in any place that we, we start to connect ourselves vocationally. And from a career standpoint, there starts to come a language that is assumed, a way of talking, a way of joking, a way of being with one another. It's different, right? And part of that is just because we work together in this field, this industry. And so we start to learn the language of that industry. We start to talk that way and we joke that way. And these are our friends and these are our associates. This is what Matthew was dealing with. So a good group of these people were his friends who did the same kind of thing occupationally that he had done. And they were as astounded as anyone that Matthew was leaving. And they wanted to meet this man who had grabbed his heart and changed his life. They knew he was a religious man, but it was unthinkable that someone with his background would actually ever be welcomed into anything like this. So it was stunning. Amidst that crowd, you had other groups as well. You had people there who were officials, who had come more out of courtesy than anything else, perhaps maybe out of self-interest, because everyone knew it was just good business. Might as well network. We would call it a networking opportunity. Absolutely, I'll be there. You never know who you met. And then there were, on top of all these, other, these people mixing together, task collectors, officials, people who are connected to Rome, people in power, people of wealth, people also known for being corrupt. In the midst of all of this, you had also Jesus' disciples who had re-recruited. They didn't actually fit in so well. They were more from the north. Most of them, not all, but most of them, in contrast to Matthew, they, were, they had been fishermen. They were more roughly hewn, if you can call it that way. Uh, they had uh, a kind of, I don't know, way of engagement that was, was uh, well, you know what? Just rougher at the edges. Not, not unintelligent, just less urbane. And they, this was not the crowd they mixed with either. And so immediately you have this group of people who don't normally come together interacting. On top of that, one more thing we know is that there was also another group of people who, although they weren't necessarily going inside, were kind of lurking on the outskirts. Some of them may have been on the outer courtyard. Others were a little bit further away. But they were the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who had come, not because they really were interested in what Matthew was doing, that party. This is a no, no, no. Because normally they wouldn't be there. They had come to watch Jesus. And they wanted, it was the guest of honor that caught their attention. He was the one who really interested them, and they wanted to know what he was doing. He was to them an enigma, a bit of a riddle. And they were trying to figure him out. So that's the context. I want us to see what's going on. Imagine in our mind's eye, all these different people groups mixing together. And then we're told some additional details that come out. Look at verse 30. It says, and the Pharisees and their scribes, they started to grumble. This is the Bible, how the Bible describes it. They had a little bit of an argument. They grumbled at his disciples. Perhaps it came out as a murmur, a critique, a criticism. But they said, why do you eat and drink with tax? What is wrong with you? How, what is your teacher doing? What are you eating with tax collectors and, and, and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, notorious, notoriously immoral people? 
I thought you said your teacher is a rabbi. He claims to be one. He doesn't care about such things, right? This was the, this was the confrontation. Now, they did not address Jesus directly, but they, they chose instead to confront his disciples. Taking into, now, here's the thing. Taking into account the paradigm that they're operating off of, we, the, the question need not be, stay with me, need not be viewed so much as a trap as an accusation. I mean, they really couldn't, it did not, they did not compute for them. It seemed like a significant disconnect. He calls himself a holy man. And yet he engages with these people. How do you explain this? A fair question in some way, but in other words, how could someone like Jesus, knowing the law, allow himself to freely consort with such, how should we say this? Upscale rabble. It was beyond, well, at least this, it, it was unconscionable and almost scandalous in their eyes. And they attacked his disciples with this. And Jesus answered their question. Maybe he heard it. Maybe he heard it. Maybe he watched what was going on. Maybe he observed. Maybe they said it loud enough because they said it loud enough so he would hear it. Either way, what we know is what follows is this. Jesus answered them. I'll tell you why. You want to know why? Look at it. Verse 31. I tell you this. I'll answer your question. Those who, are, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. And I, am, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love the way the NLT, the, the New Living Translation, it on, the, sort of gives us this verse because it has a slight nuance to it. Both are legitimate. Look at it. I'm going to put it up there real quick. This is Jesus answered them. He said, check it out. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. He said, I I have come to call those. Look at the phrase. I have come to call those who, what? Think they are righteous. Who think they are. I have not, I have called, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Not those who think they are righteous but those who know they are, they are broken and somewhat lost and are open. Like, it's almost like Jesus is implying that who is actually in better place? The one who thinks they are well but is sick or the one who knows they are sick and is more open to help? Jesus didn't argue. So here's the thing. He didn't argue the uh, moral or spiritual uh, condition of the people he was interacting with. He granted the malady, if you will. No quarrel as to the de- designation. It's true, they are sinners, but they are sick. And I am a physician, and every physician longs to heal the sick. And I am simply doing what physicians do. I am being with my patients, <laughs> caring for them, seeking. Do you understand that? Yes, we understand it, said his critics. But what we do not understand is that you seem to be enjoying yourself doing it. You act like you're enjoying it. I am. Uh, uh. And they said to him, but, but look, the disciples of John, that would be John the Baptist, who, was a, who obviously had his own following, they point this out. They said, look, look, the disciples of John, they fast. Look at this, look what it says here. 
verse 33, often and offer prayers, as do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why do you not have your disciples exercise moral, more restraint? And, and, and why are you allowing them to engage so freely like this? Right? This is an interesting question. They were puzzled. They had noted the absence of, of asceticism, of self-denial with Jesus in his group, and, and specifically the fasting that they had associated with the religious integrity and, and holiness and, and something John's disciples had had adhered to as well. And, and although Jesus' disciples fasted, they did not do it regularly. And let me just add something very quickly to this for just some of us who, who may not be familiar with it, but it had been noted, it's been noted by more than a few theologians and commentators that the annual fast specifically required in the Mosaic law, if you read the Older Testament, uh, was really only in the association with the Day of Atonement. But by Jesus' day, stay with me, stay with me, a number of fasts had been added uh, and were celebrated as expressions of, of piety. It had become uh, a normative expression of religious culture, the Pharisees being the chief proponents. In other words, a lot had been added to what was originally required, making, listen to me, making the religious life a little heavy and, and if not onerous, cumbersome. And so it, it, someone, some, you might even go as far to say, by the time of Jesus, so much had been added to what was required of the people in terms of commitment that it almost felt joyless. It almost felt joyless. And, and so that question is what sets up the little mini parable that we, we close this text with. Look at it with me. It says, then Jesus said, look, look, can you, this is what Jesus says, verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. The, uh, the, another version says that, that do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Come on, you've been to a wedding. You know what a wedding's like, that he, Jesus is saying. When the groom is ready and he's here, it's not like somber. Look, look, my coming into this world is like a wedding. I'm the groom. And my disciples are my groomsmen, my guests. And, and it's time for Celebration, not mortification. Uh, it's a time for, for joy, not gloom. I'm here. God is on the move. Do you see what's happening? Come on. A wedding feast, by the way, in G a wedding in Jesus' day, contrast to ours, it would last sometimes seven days. The whole community would stop in many ways what they were doing and celebrate a wedding together. And it was filled... Those days were filled with happiness and music and songs and feasting and celebration. It was a joyous occasion, not a sad one. And everybody knew that. It's almost like Jesus says, and besides, my, my coming is like a wedding, so don't expect us to be a gloom and doom. And he says, and by the way, there'll be plenty of time to sadness. <laughs> I love this. What he, said. he says, by the way, there'll be plenty of time for sadness by the time you're done with me. He was talking about the cross. He knew where it was going. He goes, and then my disciples will fast because their hearts will be grieving by what you have done to me. It's powerful. Look at that 35th verse. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You see it? The word we translate taken away implies being seized in a violent manner. Jesus is saying that <laughs> when the cross comes, it'll be a time to mourn and fast, but not now. And I might add to that, and after the resurrection, not anymore either. 
he's alive. He died so that we ultimately would not be bound by death, and he lives so that we may live. To whoever will receive him, I have come to give you life. So here's some expansion thoughts, and this is where I wanted us to go. I know a lot of us are note takers, and we take it very seriously. We're engaging this, especially at the beginning of the year. So I'm going to lay some things at your feet, as it were, and just make a couple of, uh, well, this is not a small thing to me, what we're about to do, actually. It's what's taking what we just learned and applying it to our lives. Because a faith that doesn't show up in real life is not much of a faith at all. But following Jesus, honestly, if you just look at what he says here, invites us to live joyfully. It really does. At its core, the Christian life is joyful. Now, that is not to be confused with problem-free. Because in this world of ours, there is no problem-free life, in case any of us haven't noticed. We will all, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, but be of good cheer, the older version says. I have overcome the world, and you know me. But it's not problem-free life. We live in a very broken culture. I think that's obvious. Now, I know on the veneer, I think we recognize this. We are prospering like no other generation probably has ever prospered in the history of humanity up to this point. It is an unparalleled time of technological advancement. And people in the West, in America particularly, we take things for granted that oftentimes people in other parts of the world still have no, no even chance or opportunity to pursue. This is the truth. Um, and yet, what's fascinating is we live in a very troubled time. People are taking their lives. We constantly read about anxiety and stress. And everybody's trying to figure out how to be at peace. The recognition that things aren't working right, that relationships don't last, they're melting down, don't, are not equipped. The addictive patterns of a prosperous culture the confusion that seems to permeate, the anger that seems to separate, all of this is real. The brokenness of the human spirit cannot be actually covered only by what we have and possess. Jesus said it would be so. You, a person's life will never consist of the abundance of the things that they possess. He says, don't ever be deceived by that. You cannot, we cannot buy our way into happiness. And the joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is our strength. Now, I, I differentiate between Happiness and joy, I know this is a minor point here, but happiness tends to be, in my mind, connected to things that happen to us. It's circumstantial. If this happens, this is all I'm gonna say about this. If the Niners win, I will be happy, okay? <laughs> if they don't, I will be unhappy. But my joy is different. It is connected to Christ, truly, and therefore, we are actually equipped, whether we take advantage of the resource or not, to overcome any point of adversity in our life. Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, learning how to appropriate his joy at the deepest place is not always an easy thing to do. It is something we learn to do. We grow into our capacity. Um, I'm suggesting that discouragement, seasons of discouragement and despair are going to happen in life Particularly, Jesus did not say it wouldn't. Um, and if he, think about it, he himself models that. 
understood betrayal, separation, suffering, you name it, <coughs> abandonment. Shamed and beaten, stripped at the hands of sinful men, as the scripture says. Forsaken even by his father for a moment as he bears the weight of human lostness. It's normal to have seasons of discouragement and despair. I've had them, particularly when things are not going well. It can get hard. Maybe you're in a hard time right now. But I still maintain that for the follower of Jesus, the Lord never wants his joy to be extinguished out of our life. And we are not to live, listen, in the domain of the gray, gray cloud. That is not our lot or call. But we are a people of the sun, not the people of the gray cloud, if you will. This morning I woke up, with, well, I came to, this, to the church. By the time I got here, the sun was breaking out. And I don't know how many of you saw it, but we had a gorgeous sky. It was so, in fact, the team, when we were gathered together, some of us took, took some time just to look at the beauty of the, and it's something about the beauty of creation that speaks deep into the human spirit. It's almost like the creator wired us to be stirred by the beauty of creation in ways that go deep, like deep into our heart. The beauty of it caught my attention. But that's also a reminder for me when I saw the sun breaking through, reminding me that Jesus will break through sometimes into our lives. Like the sun breaks out if we open up our heart. His joy fills us. Here's another thing to consider. Being with Jesus is meant to be light. What am I talking about? Not heavy. Deep. Deep, yes. But not, not, not dark. No, no moody blues. No brooding. That wasn't, that's not meant to be the way. You know, Jesus, oh, okay, look at your hand out there. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight. It's Look at it, this is the other passage I put right there. One of my most favorite portions of scripture of anything recorded by the words, the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find, look at this, rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. By the way, this is one of the few times in all the New Testament that Jesus makes this kind of an invitation. I mean, you, check, you go search the scriptures. It's It's unique. His words were always filled with love, and there's a lot of other things that he said in addition to that, a lot of indictments he made as well, assessments. But this is like a unique invitation. It's so gentle. It's relational. It's tender. Um, you know, a yoke, a yoke was a work instrument for an ox. And he's saying, my yoke is easy. It's like, you know what he's saying? It's well-fitting. It sits well on you. It's, um, it's not heavy. Uh, I love the way Eugene Peter rendered this, Peterson rendered this passage in the message. Check this out. See how beautiful it is. Are you tired, he says. We'll put this up. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out even on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. 
This is why we spend time with the Lord in his words. Watch his life. Welcome him into ours. And look at this last, next phrase. Learn, look at Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. The unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And there are times where I go, Lord, long life, you know, maybe. Things we take for granted again. Um, I don't know. I don't know how long my life's going to be. I was reading this really interesting article. It said, and I didn't think about it. I had never, I probably read it. I just didn't know. I, in 1900, you know what the life expectancy of a typical person living in, in this country was? 47 years old. Oh, the article was making the case that people now obviously are living much longer than in their late 70s. And they also said that if you hit 80, you've got a really good chance of making it to 90. <laughs> that's what the data shows. Now, they didn't say if that's good or bad. They just said that's what the data shows. <laughs> but what they, also, what they also said was fascinating me as well um, was that they said that, um, think, <laughs> they said, 70 is the new 50. That's what they said in that article. I was just going, well, I don't know about that. But here's the thing. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Um, I find myself in life, even as I've gotten older, there are times, like this happened just a couple of days. It happened to me yesterday. I was, I was feeling weight. Pressure. We got Some of you have it on you as well. And as I was sitting with this, it dawned on me. Like I, heard, I felt like this is what the Lord said. When you feel that level of weight and stress, it's because you're carrying something I didn't assign you. I didn't assign you. You're holding it. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not ill-fitting. That was weighing heavy, too heavy on me. It meant that I was not yielding properly to the Lord. I was not allowing him into this situation. I was carrying something that I was not assigned. There are some things some of us are carrying. We were not assigned to carry it. Do not self-assign. I'm not talking about escapism. You understand what I meant. I'll leave it with this, and this is how we'll close. His, and, his, and, and some of us, uh, when we get to the, well, I'll just put it up. His way advice us to break into new paths and possibilities. It's a grand adventure of expansion and new beginnings. Just like Matthew, think about this, was about to break into a new season. In, in his case, it was a new occupation, no question. The Lord has things he wants to break us into this year and things he wants to break us out of. Out of and into. That's why we talked about our church, what we sensed God was calling us into for, for the decade, if you will. But also for this year, that's what we talked about, So water reap and and this, we gave these out. And then, by the way, if any of you weren't there, feel free to pick one up on your way out. If you lost yours, that's okay, too. Pick one up. If you have a friend that you love and you want to give them one, you can have one, too, for them. Fact is, so water reap is a part of our plan and what God's trying to say to us. But here's the thing. Is God trying to do new beginnings? I am going to leave with a series of questions for you to sit with. And I realize that some of us, if you just want it, you can take a shot of it, the screen, because I want to just put it up there all at once. But here's a question I have for us as it pertains. What expansion is the Lord trying to work in us? Okay? 
Here's the thing. Is he trying to work in some of us trust? Is he working as, does he want to work in some of our lives devotion? Like at another level? Faith? Influence? Perhaps some of us, God's calling us to finally be willing to assume responsibility. Maybe it's time for us to host a small group or co-lead one or to help start a ministry that's been in our heart for a while. I don't know. It might have to do with God trying to develop resilience in us at a new level. Like really learning how to, as David said, make my feet nimble like the feet of a deer. But by my God, I can, I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. At the idea of being able to negotiate difficult places in life without falling apart or becoming angry or bitter. I don't know. What is God trying to develop in us? This is the time. This month is for us to consider expansion at a deeper level. To sort of sit with these things. Maybe it has to do with our relationships. Maybe it's connected to relationships at work. And how God wants us to be in those relationships. Perhaps it's connected to things at home and how God's calling us to be. Maybe some of us are, are we, we, we have some real areas to, to grow at home. We're one person here, but there we're a different person. Maybe this is the year when God's saying, you know, I really want you to get a hold of your, your anger or your words that are coming out that just demean one another. This is a house where the name of Jesus is truly loved. And we're not perfect people, but we are seeking to not allow fissures to come in and separate and create space and push us away from one another. Maybe at work, God's calling us to be more of a peacemaker. What are our relationships? What are the implications of that, right? Maybe it has to do with character formation. And how God's really wanting us to be free of certain addictive patterns that are unhelpful to us. We don't even want them. How do we learn? You know, we always grow together. We always grow better together. I'm a big believer in training together. It's true physically. I'm not saying we're not self-starters, but here's the thing. We, we all will at times need someone else to help us. The value of having a shape group, small group, the value of having um, an engagement in ministry expression, the value in having friends and accountability, the value of encouraging one another as we train together, we make ourselves better because we're not always strong at the same time, right? But sometimes God's trying to form our character. Maybe this is a year where the Lord really is trying to get us to have more integrity in our life so there's not a lot of gap between who we say we are or who we look like publicly or who we profess to be and who we are privately or in places where no one sees. That there's more alignment. Because whenever we have alignment inside, when there's less disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually are implementing, what we will find is there is peace. The more internal peace I have, the more external peace we will have in Christ. This is true. The storm inside will not be hidden, but the peace inside will prevail. You understand what I'm saying? Last thing has, may have to do with attitude. For me personally, this is where I'm putting a ton of energy into since the last year. I'm really asking God to help me. Because when you start getting into my age, you start losing things. And it's easy to, to give up, like even like on a future. You have, to be, you have to be really, I'm saying I want to be more positive. I want to be a person who's joy-filled. Just everything we talked about, right? I want to be, I, I don't want to get stuck in grievance and, and negativity and cyn, have cynicism in my heart around things. And just my, my go-to emotion is, well, you know, whatever, or negative. Forget that. The way of Jesus is like a wedding, not a funeral. It's a wedding. Joy. Ah, <laughs> I love you guys. I love this church. 
so thankful to be able to serve and to be connected and to run together in this race of faith. Static, no. An adventure, yes. Mm, let's pray. Oh, and by the way, you gave amazingly already. You, you finished this. I mean, you, church, off the charts, some of you, you know who you are. So faithful. All right, Lord, I ask that you would just be with us as we come to these closing minutes, this closing song. I thank you, God, just an amazing group of people who love you genuinely. I know not a lot. We're not, none of us are perfect. None of us. All, that's not an excuse. That's just true. But we seek to follow the one who is and have more of your reality shine forth through our life. So as we come to this time, quick giving time, but really the closing song, which is our benediction, our final word of blessing for the day, at least at this part of our day, let the things that we've sat with here and considered, let them settle into our heart as we hear this in song and close these moments out. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you.